That's Herb Alpert in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Meg Rowley, and on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I welcome back to the program long-exiled lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs, Eric Longenhagen. Eric and I discuss some of the early trades and signings of hot stove season and offer our view of what those trades and signings portend for the rest of this winter. We also discuss the topic of mobile college quarterbacks in a way that is tangentially related to baseball, contemplate Yoko Ono and a possible work stoppage, and then engage some other sorts of content. What sorts of content, you may ask? Stoner Eric content. Shocking. All of that is coming up, but before you can listen to it, it is my obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. For the cost of one gas station wine cooler a month, you can support the wonderful work at Fangraphs, including Eric and fellow prospect analyst Kylie McDaniel's Teamless, Jeff Sullivan and Craig Edwards's Transaction Analysis, and Dan Zimborski, who is rolling out his team-by-team 2019 Zips projections as we speak. You can support those things and many other very good things as well. You may also, for a slightly greater sum, purchase an ad-free membership and enjoy Fangraphs without banner ads. That bit of business being complete, I take you to my conversation with Eric Longenhagen, lead prospect analyst of Fangraphs, which begins right now. Eric, it's been a little while since you've been on Fangraphs Audio. I know, I was blackballed. <laughs> was Carson very jealous of uh, of your other podcast ventures? Uh, yes, and it created a, a rift. There was part of why he left. There was a lot of discontent <laughs> at the end. The untitled McDonoghan-Hagen project is the Yoko Ono of Fangraphs. <laughs> Kylie Sorry, is... Naked in bed with it right now for a photo shoot. Oh dear, mm, we really do need an HR department. <laughs> Referencing what magazine was that? Was it People or Time that Yoko and John were like uh, caressing uh, each other on the cover? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. What does the internet tell us? I don't know. Do we care? Well, now I want to know. We are one. We are John and Yoko. We're just one person now. (laughs) It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Well, welcome back to the show. It's, you know, there are fewer hyphens even in the way we talk, but a lot of stuff is still the same. Uh, I keep accidentally imitating Carson in the intro. I think I have to change the music. I think Uh, I do. I'm surprised that you didn't do that right away. I was I was worried about people feeling lost and disoriented. So Even, I just have too many. Yeah, I could see people don't like change in general. Yeah, but like I just think of what is it the dating game? Like sure. I don't have another. That's what I draw from. So like if I had to pick a game show theme song to be the podcast theme song, I think it would be the match game theme song. Mm. That's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. I think that uh, where this will probably end up going is something more akin to like the the music you might hear in like a a Nancy Myers or Nora Ephron movie with like Meryl Streep making a croissant. Okay. Something zippy and uh, but you know a little lighter uh, in its in its tone and approach, and that doesn't make me think about Carson talking with like fourteen clauses in a sentence. So. It's probably where we end up going. It's Rolling Stone. It was Rolling Stone. Oh, okay. John and Yoko. I like the Nancy Myers movie posters all kind of look alike. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's people looking at each other in an emotional way. Yeah. Two white people possessed of intense feelings, probably over the age of 40, at least lately. She made the superior parent trap, in my opinion, though. Oh, I, I respect that take. Oh, Lindsay, what happened to you, man? <laughs> Lady, it fell so far. That's not what we're here to talk about. The other the other big change to the to Fangraphs audio is that there's a lot more obvious like talking about baseball now than there used to be. Although we started with Yoko Ono and John Lennon, so we are still uh, paying respect to Fangraphs audio canon, I guess. And you know, we're sort of very recently into hot stove season. The, the stove is hot, but like it just warmed up. And there have been featured in a lot of the deals that we've seen so far some pretty prominent prospects or prospects who the teams trading for them hope to be prominent for their organizations. So I thought I'd have you on and we could talk about some prospects and then we could talk about other offseason stuff because you know about that stuff too. Yes, I do know about them prospects. Yeah, it's a specialty of yours. You are lead prospect analyst. It's another different thing. I got to stop calling attention to the stuff that's different. It's going to be weird for people. So so I guess the big the big deals that we have seen so far have mostly involved the Mariners. Uh, they, of course, had their large mega deal, if we want to call it that. I called it that several times. We'll call it a mega deal that sent Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz to the Mets in exchange for, you know, some older and expensive players. But I think, you know, what they were concerned with was the prospect return, which included, how are we saying his name? Kelnick. Kelnick. Okay. Kelnick. Yeah. Kelnick. I really should get this right because in theory. Jared with two R's, Kelnick. Jared Kelnick, who is sort of the, the main headliner uh, along with Justin Dunn. And then they also got uh, Gerson Batista. And then did a second trade that didn't include, you know, someone who is a prospect now. J.P. Crawford is no longer prospect eligible. No, he's uh, in limbo, as we like to put it. Yeah. Uh, but went along with Carlos Santana to the Mariners, uh, and the Mariners sent back Gene Segura and Juan Nicasio and James Pazos, who has a terrific mustache. It is. He looks very serious. So those have been, and then, and then, uh, I guess the other one that included a, a headliner prospect, uh, who, who you also wrote about was this Jan Gomes deal. Right. And I'm looking at, uh, you'll have to remind me of the return. Who was the exciting guy in that deal? Can Daniel Johnson. The, Daniel uh, Johnson. There you go. Yeah. The speedy outfielder from New Mexico State who I was lucky enough to see in college for a while and so we sort of have a long history with that player. But yeah, like, I think by my count, there have been about 25 prospects moved so far this offseason. And yeah, the best ones have all been acquired by Seattle. Yeah, I don't think calling the Cano deal a mega deal is like so apt. I don't think people in the United States properly gauge Robinson Cano's, like the Robbie Cano iconography in Latin America. Like he is yeah. the, the top of the heap yeah. for Latin American, like the young uh, Latino kids who come over here to play, start their careers in like the AZL or the GCL. This is who they worship. Like this is Trout for them. This is uh, like Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah. Uh, so that's a huge, huge deal from even like for non-baseball reasons. But yeah, you know, Justin Dunn is probably going to be on our off-season hundred. He probably belongs if you want to look at it now, if you're listening to this, uh, somewhere close to wherever Jonathan Duplantier with the Diamondbacks is. 
Their stuff is pretty similar. They both didn't pitch a whole lot in college for various reasons, and there might be some ceiling there. But we think Dunn is probably going to be an average big league starter with a chance to be above. And Kellick was just, you know, the sixth overall pick in the draft, was functionally a college prospect. Like, he was 19-year-old high schoolers. He was old for high school and was just super advanced. And so in a first round that didn't have a whole lot of college bats outside of the first couple guys that were picked, Madrigal and Joey Bart and stuff, this was like the polished high school bat that we figured someone would run to in the top 10 once all the other college hitters were off the board. And it's exactly what happened when the Mets took him at six. And it seems to be the case, right, when like the new GMs come in, that the prospects that were attached to the previous regime are very vulnerable to trade. I mean, yeah. Seattle went through it themselves, right? When when yep. Jack Z left, Alex Jackson and Luis Gohara were both out the door. And there's just not they're not tied to these guys. There's no emotional or reputational attachment to these players anymore. And so they're a lot easier to part with than I think they would be otherwise. Yeah, we've seen Jerry be I mean, I'm gonna do a swear, Dylan. Like Jerry doesn't give a f- about Jack's kids <laughs> like, and right. and not just and not just guys that he's moved recently I mean you can even see it in dudes who are a little further into their careers and were thought of as sort of established major leaguers like Taiwan Walker or guys who were younger but still promising like Tel Marte I mean he didn't he flipped Chris Taylor for nothing so yeah there's a cleaning house and I, I think you're right that some of it is not only that they don't care because they didn't draft them but like if they turn into something it's like well Whatever, I didn't let any of my own guys go for no reason, right. even though we all remember that they were Mariners prospects or Mets prospects or what have you. I guess I because it feels like it was a month and a half ago, but it was really just right before Thanksgiving, I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention the, the Yankees deal that the Mariners did that brought back Justice Sheffield and Eric Swanson and... There was a third piece, Dom, Thompson, Williams, Williams right, yep. for, for PAX. So they've been very busy. And you wrote a little bit about this when you were when you were assessing the Cano deal. You know, I say the Cano deal, the prospect side of that is really the Edwin Diaz deal, right? Like, right, yeah. Which we can talk more about in a second. But this sort of rejiggers our understanding of where the Mariners sit in our farm system sort of assessments. Right, yeah. When Craig Edwards ran the numbers based on his asset value calculations – and applied it to everyone's farm system, which is really like my favorite use of that stuff. Because it does, it is applicable. Like we can talk about the issues with the dollar for war stuff and how it's nonlinear and all that stuff is true. Yeah. But across the entire league, that stuff all balances out and you do have equilibrium. And so like when we're looking at farm system value values, I do think it's it's super useful. And yeah, they were at the very bottom of Craig's rankings when he first put them out based on our uh, evaluations of the players at the end of the season. And of course, we're redoing all of those now. But the addition of these three 50 future value guys in Sheffield and Kelnick and Dunn, plus Eric Swanson, who's probably something, just based on how the fastball plays, it seems like it's something that you can really identify on TrackMan with, the, with that why his fastball is so effective despite limited velocity. Like they've probably moved from the very bottom to somewhere just shy of the middle. And Crawford's not a prospect anymore for these purposes, but he he really kind of is. And then depending on what you think of him, you can sort of fold him into this equation. And then, yeah, I know that the org has talked about how good the farm system will be once all of this is done and where they'll sort of line up. And Buster only tweeted about them maybe being in the top five. 
kind of think they'd have to move Hanniger for that math to shake out. Right. I was kind of surprised at how little they got back for Segura. Even with all of the trim, like, yes, I do believe Segura's market was probably limited to three teams and two of those he used to play for in Milwaukee and perhaps Arizona, who has a need in, on the middle infield. And given given what the industry thinks of D. Gordon, right. who Segura got into a fight with during the summer, I think the industry is kind of worried about Segura as a clubhouse entity because like D. Gordon is this shining ray of light that everyone loves. Yeah. So that might have impacted things as well. Or, but really to, to reconcile that, that specific trade, like you really have to love Crawford and also think that they might either flip Santana or that his skills will age really well, which I think there's the, the latter, I think is true. I think like Santana as a defensive first baseman and someone who has feel for the strike zone, like he'll just be that for another couple of years. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was interesting watching, you know, I still have a, an eye kind of pointed toward Mariners Twitter a lot of the time. And it was interesting watching the discussion around Santana after this all went down, because I think, you know, we aren't alone in feeling a little underwhelmed with the return for Segura, even understanding the limitations of his market. But like, you know, their options at first base are pretty bad. I mean, like Ryan Healy is not a useful everyday player right now. And they seem to have very little confidence in Daniel Vogelback for whatever reason that still is unclear to me and like Santana had a bad first month but he hit fine the rest of the time and like if you're not if you're not trying to win like whatever marginal downside there is to his defense or a slow start or whatever doesn't really matter he's a like he's a competent player he'll be fine he can DH they won't have crews anymore it's always it's just uh I kind of I I love this time of year cuz you get to you learn so much about what what teams value and how they think about their own rosters and how they think about the market and I often hate all of the analysis that goes with it. I mean not <laughs> ours. Like ours is great. We are very smart and everyone writes good words. But like the the takiness of hot stove Twitter is <sighs> it's the worst. It sort of fans its own flames, right? Yes. Because not only is there a dopamine rush associated with the conflict and the attention one receives for having said takes, but like it does create a, a larger platform for you. And then you have, you know, the next time you do it, there's even more of that. So I don't know. Uh, yes. Analysis. I think uh, I mean, we're going to like wait, go way off the rails here, but, um, <laughs> but yes, the, the Twitter analysis is, needs to be viewed in context of the medium, uh, which I don't know if we always properly gauge how impactful that medium has been on discourse <laughs> and the quality of that analysis. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I understand. I guess it would be boring for people to hear like, this could be fun or it could be bad. We'll right. see in five years. <laughs> right. And there are definitely people who have a good baseball head on their shoulders who would say, no, like you should have some conviction about this yeah. sort of stuff. Not just like, Oh yeah, I could see how this Cano trade where people might think the Mets are taking a bath because Cano's deal is so in the red, but you could also say that like that division is so in flux right now that it makes sense for them to try to compete. So yeah, I'm more apt to look at both sides. Like I don't get emotional about this stuff anymore. 
I have a lot of empathy for people on both sides because the financial constraints and the stuff that makes us feel kind of gross about the competitive motivations, like there's an, it's not, you can't always trust these teams as their, their incentive is not just to win. Right. Uh, they're not guided by that alone, even though ideally we would like that. It would be healthier for like every part of the professional sports ecosystem if that were just the case. Yeah. Um, and it's not, and I hate that part, but I do understand yeah. that the people who are tasked with making those decisions are not the ones who are imposing those financial constraints upon the franchise. Right. It's ownership. And right. I don't think anyone really – I can't imagine an executive in any sport being like, you know what? Screw I don't want to spend money. Money's yeah. stupid. And then they'll be fired and no one will right. – they'll be completely unhirable. Right. <laughs> and it sucks to have worked for however long all these people in sports have worked for and then just be – blacklisted because you stood up to your penny pinching owner so like, i don't expect people to do that it's yeah. not that serious you know it's not yeah. like a, a a social atrocity a civil rights atrocity that people are trying to stand up against it's yeah it sucks that these players are only making a few million dollars instead of many million dollars <laughs> like yeah in the minor league level it's a totally different sure, thing to talk yeah. about but yeah like whether or not Ronald Acuna's service time gets jobbed by a year is not a huge – I'm not going to fret over it even though I do think it sucks because ultimately that guy's going to be like a multimillionaire anyway and I don't fetishize money so much that I need him to be like a – to be that several dozen times over as soon as possible. A, a many, many millionaire. Many, Sorry, many everyone. Just, <laughs> just being honest. I mean I think that if we're if we're assigning like a, a an urgency to the hierarchy of issues, then you know it's minor league pay with a bullet, right? You can't right. you can't arrive at a different conclusion than that go. because they're not even making a living wage most of the time unless they came in with, you know, significant bonus cushion. So it's you know, there is like, I think, a much greater sense of moral urgency uh, with respect to the situation that those guys find themselves in. Mm -hmm. I mean, they need to get paid at some point for it to equal out, right? For there to be some kind of equilibrium between ownership and labor. But I think you're right. It's like last offseason, people were very exercised on JD Martinez's behalf. And you're like, well, yeah, sure. But also, he's fine. Yeah. So, but don't, don't dare bring your nuance onto my internet, man. Dang it. <laughs> I am going to be really interested to see just, you know, with that sort of dynamic in mind to see, I mean, one statement is just one statement. We're going to have to see what they end up spending money on. But I'm I'm really curious to see how things go with the Phillies because I think that probably more publicly and more obviously than anyone else, any other uh, ownership person we've seen recently, John Middleton is out here saying that they're like going to spend stupid money. I'm like, oh, it's like Mike Yelich is alive again. <laughs> yeah. How you doing, Mike? <laughs> What's going on? That situation's so interesting because you know, they have – because David Montgomery's sort of departure from the public eye there has really changed the tone of the top of that franchise. And like yeah. David Montgomery – the last time I saw David Montgomery in person, and I have seen him in person at Philly's minor league games – he was just in line in front of me buying a ticket. <laughs> like I was just in line waiting to get – because I would buy tickets at the Iron Pigs games because I know like, they're not going to let me in the scout section at a heavily attended AAA game. Like I'm sure. just not going to be able to walk down there. So like I got to buy a ticket. I'm like David Montgomery's just in front of me and like no one knew who he was. He was just in line buying a ticket on his own. He didn't have like anyone else with him. 
And so there was something about that sort of down home, like old school scouty type thing that yeah. permeated through that entire organization. And so it has been a pretty intense shakeup there. And yeah, I do think they're going to try to spend a ton of money. Uh, and I think they've been active. I do think they've checked in on Madison Bumgarner Ooh. and are just sort of putting feelers out there and trying to see where they might make a deal that they like. And I think having Segura in place is a really great thing for pursuing Machado, who I would just rather have play third base than shortstop. I know that he wants yeah. to play shortstop, but I would just rather have him play third base. But it does create like, okay, now Cesar Hernandez and or Scott Kingery is probably also on the market now that they have yep. Segura. So yep. it'll be interesting to see how they can how they can spin that around. Hernandez has been pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I felt bad for him at the beginning of the, the season because I felt like he kind of got short shrift and it's only going to get worse here. I think I agree with you on Machado. I really – he is like the one person who I wish would talk – maybe he will. Who knows? But when he makes his free agency decision and it's been announced and they've taken the picture of him in his new little hat – I would love for him to talk at great length about what motivated the choice. And I don't think we'll hear it much, you know, beyond the usual platitudes. But I keep hoping one of these guys is going to be like, yeah, they gave me the same amount of money as someone else, but they said I could stick it short. So here I am, right? Something something right. like that. I don't think we'll hear it, but I would love it if we did. Yeah. I'd like to hear him talk about a lot of different things yeah. that motivate him. <laughs> you know? And with a contract safely in hand so that he can be even more right. candid. My neighbor's beagle is pissed at uh, Machado. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. That's a complex situation too. Uh, and I'm not sure. I think both Harper and Machado are kind of waiting for the other domino to fall and kind of set a market. And Boris especially likes to kind of sit around yeah, uh, and see how things shake out. But yeah, that'll be very interesting. Well, and given that Philly is likely to be super active in that market, I kind of had the sense that now that this – this deal is done, right? And they have Segura and they've offloaded Santana, which was a contract they were clearly keen to move on from, that maybe we're going to start to see an acceleration of the rest of the sort of position player guys because they'll have sorted this deal out and can move on to, you know, backing up a Brinks truck for somebody if they mm -hmm. want to. I think you and I have talked about this too, that if all things considered, like, eh, I'd just rather have Nolan Arenado. So yeah. I suppose they could do the Scott Kingery plays out of position somewhere thing next year or as some sort of super utility player. But yeah, I, I kind of think that they're ready to dive in. And then they have all this other – they still have pieces to consolidate. Yeah. Like Odubel Herrera is enigmatic in a lot of different ways too and his contract is totally reasonable and he's a good player but he's super streaky and he's weird. <laughs> he's just a weird cat, man. Like he really is. Uh, and I wonder what they'd want to do there. His batting stance is one of my favorite things. So He's many like of extreme open stance. Yeah. Well, and so it seems like I'm trying to think who else this would be true of because I have it as a general sense, but now I'm kind of. I mean, the body type is totally different, but it seems like a lot of guys who come out of that Rangers system have that sort of weirdly pronated foot oh, yeah. thing in their stances. Am yeah, I Joey Gallo does that too, right? Yeah, totally right. Like totally different body type than. Than Herrera, but like that weird. I'm like, are you able to stand that way? If you got shoved, would you kind of have to catch yourself? Because <laughs> uh, you're so weirdly positioned. 
Yeah, they're funny. funny yeah, Rugi. I'm pretty sure Rugi's is like that too. What is that? Who is that in the Ranger system that is good question. that is doing that to these guys? I mean, it, hey, it works fine. They're all in the majors. It's not like it's holding them back, but it's right. it's a weirdly consistent thing. While we were getting ready to record, we had other free agent news. Well, this happened earlier today. Today is what is today? Today's Thursday. Yes. All the days are blending together. You have time dilation so bad, like I can tell. Oh my god! It's, it's an off-season re- uh, tradition of mine. It's really <laughs> a problem. It's really, it's really a problem, especially because my my day schedule has shifted like an hour or two earlier. Very, you know, it happened very abruptly oh, since yeah. Carson left. So I'm just, uh, I have like four reminders on my phone to actually go to the airport on Saturday to go to Vegas because I'm worried I'm going to wake up and be like, it is not actually Friday. I need to be at the airport now. But that's that's not the point. So Evaldi signed Carlos Carrasco, signed an extension with Cleveland. The Cardinals acquired Paul Goldschmidt yesterday. Oh, is that a big deal? Did the best first baseman in, in baseball get traded? Should we care about that? Yeah, we should probably talk about that. Poor, poor Diamondbacks fans. I mean, they're getting they're getting young players who are interesting. Although right. I think I think kind of divisive in the in the way that the industry regards them. But man, it it just it just super sucks to lose your guy. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Feels gross. I mean, you were here. You you saw what it was yeah. like here, and he's he was the man, and he has been the best first baseman in baseball like this decade. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's um it's one of those situations where it's hard for uh, you know I know a lot of Diamondbacks fans now yeah. for me to say okay like look I know that this sucks and that the players that they got back are kind of meh yeah but part of the situation is there's one year left in this guy's deal. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a huge option that can be picked up. So really, like, and it's probably worth it. So really, you could say two years. Carson Kelly is going to be the starting catcher, I would imagine, at some point next year. He has an option year left. But uh, I think what this does for, like, uh, it's, this is obvious what this does for St. Louis is they got the best first baseman in baseball. Matt Carpenter is probably going to move to third base and be pretty bad over there, but not any worse than the guys that they were playing over there last year. Because, right. like... Paul DeYoung and Jet Jerko and those guys, like they're not good infield defenders anyway. No, they're not. But for the for the D backs, I think this accelerates Jake Lamb's move to first base, which I think was gonna happen at some point anyway, and I just think it'll be sooner now. Mm-hmm. Have we heard much about how he's doing? No, I don't know. That's... Uh that situation was no bueno. No. Markel really Foltzish. Yeah, poor and, like, guy. The constant shoulder, whatever. But yeah, so I think that'll start to happen. And then Carson Kelly will be the starting catcher at some point. They still kind of... Luke Weaver, I don't know. I don't know if that guy's ever going to have a viable breaking ball, but he's really athletic, and I just think he's a fourth or fifth starter. And then the pick that they got back means that this draft class is huge. Yeah. They have, I think, eight of the top 93 picks in the draft now. Like They have 10% of the first 70... five picks in the draft or something like that so feels potentially franchise altering right yeah so this will be a huge draft for the diamondbacks and the group that they they drafted last year alec thomas high school outfielder from chicago area blaze alexander high school shortstop from florida jake mccarthy was sort of an undercooked kind of raw college player from virginia because he was hurt a lot 
like that group combined with next year's group, it'll be interesting to see if it's a bunch of college guys or if they kind of diversify or if they lean hard on high school guys, uh, because you'll be able to see the entire layer of the D-backs farm system will just be chock full of guys who are either two to three years away if they take a more conservative college route or four to five years away if it's a bunch of high school guys. And watching those guys develop as a group is going to be really uh, fascinating for me. But yeah, it's just, it seems like the, what the Mariners did with Paxton was, eh, I guess they got a bunch of pieces back, but like with Segura, certainly it's, we got one guy back we think is good. And then with this deal, it's, we got a bunch of guys back we think is okay. And you've kind of diversified. And it's just interesting to see the way teams approach stuff like this in drastically different ways. Yeah. Man, may we all have the job security of Yadier Molina. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing, too, about Carson Kelly is, like, he can really play defense, but I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of offensive impact there. Yeah. And Andrew Kisner, who, you know, is also in that system, I just prefer to Carson Kelly at this point, even though he's not nearly the defensive player Kelly is, just because I think he might actually do something with the bat. And I think the Cardinals probably felt that way too. Yeah, would, it would. Seen this. It would. It would appear so. Would appear that way. And then good on the Cardinals for flipping Andy Young in this deal too. Like I like Andy Young a little bit. I ranked him pretty aggressively on the Cardinals list. But two years ago, this guy was a 37th rounder. The draft is 40 rounds. He was a 37th round, three thousand dollar bonus out of Indiana State, and now he was the piece in yeah. for the best first baseman. So like good on the, uh, the Cardinals amateur staff for doing that. Yeah. No kidding. I always wonder, I think the Cardinals are definitely a team that would be on this list. You know, there, there are teams that I think we have a perception of being especially um, astute in their drafting in late rounds. And I always wonder if it's because they're actually a lot better at it or because they drafted Albert Pujols one time. <laughs> and so we just, imagine them to be sort of a cut above in their assessment uh capability there i mean like clearly they're they're continuing to do some things right but i always wonder how that has shaped our perception of them and possibly other teams that's a thing that i've asked people in baseball about is like why have the cardinals been so good at this specific thing like finding random generic college player x and turning him into something even if it's just like a bench guy and while I do think that there is, I think they were early adopters of a hybrid methodology that included more performance analytics. I think they leaned heavy on college performers. Those are the types of guys who typically outpace our scouting expectations. Sure. And then supplemented that with some of the track man stuff before a lot of other teams did. And that was helpful. But also someone in baseball told me this, that you'll never believe this, as a means of saving money... Jeff Lunau, while he was in St. Louis, was like, hey, let's just not sign minor league free agents. Like, let's yeah. do very little of the minor league free agent stuff. We'll have a bunch of these senior signed college players that are totally fine at high A and double A. Like, they'll be roster filler at high A and double A. And a couple of them will end up working out and be controllable, useful big leaguers for like next to nothing. And instead of signing $200,000 minor league free agents, uh, we'll do that. And so artificially, there was a path cleared for those types of guys right? Uh, to like run up to double A very quickly and then either sink or swim. And the ones that swim are the guys that you know about. 
Right. And the ones that don't, uh, you've forgotten about already. Right. And you can start to see, see it in the Houston system too. Like Google Josh Rojas and Randy Cesar and stuff. It's like those guys were senior signs who quickly got to double A. And now everyone's like, wow, this guy's in double A in his first full pro season. Should we know about this guy? And the answer for most of those is no, probably not. Nah, probably not. But some of them will make me look bad <laughs> for not knowing who they are um, or ranking them. So I have to have to be like, hey, what, have you seen Randy Cesar and Josh Rojas? Josh Rojas has a nice face. Like it's a kind. He has a kind face. I'm very disappointed that when I googled them, they did not appear on a cover of Rolling Stone together, locked in an intimate embrace. Would have been a nice, <laughs> nice callback. Uh, I can't believe Josh Luna is cheap. That's so surprising. I'm a little nervous about. He's, an, he's a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> Consultants gonna consultant. Yep. Yep. Oh man, I'm boss. a little nervous about. Um, well, I won't uh, flatter myself and think that too too many people in baseball actually listen to this podcast. But the mm. last two times we've I've recorded, I have been mindful of the fact that. I will probably meet some people I have not met in Vegas, and I don't necessarily want the last thing that I said about them in public to be, and he's real cheap. Uh, eh. There's just some, you know, where it's just like, eh, you don't need to like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, people don't need to like me. It doesn't, it doesn't really make uh, any difference. And, you know... Josh Luno. Luno yeah. strikes me as the kind of guy who would be like, yeah, a little bit. Maybe not take that as an insult after all. So Yeah, I, there's definitely – there are traits that make good GMs, and I think that that guy is one of them. But that's maybe – it's not always stuff that's like super nice to be part of. You know, like um, – I don't know. Like, just watch the Wolf of Wall Street. Just, just do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just I mean, like, oh, this is you're very successful, but there are these problems. <laughs> I mean, the last time I was in Vegas, it was for a, a conference I organized for Goldman, and I can tell you that yes, that is a true fact. That is a true perspective that some folks have. They are keen oh, yeah. to misbehave. That was so funny. It's like um, there were definitely people that when that movie came out and there are other examples of this. It's like when Michael Scott sees the devil wears Prada and like mistakenly thinks that Meryl Streep's character is like the protagonist hero of the thing. It's like, no, you didn't come away from this movie with the right idea. Right. You did not, you did not properly identify the villain of this piece. It's like my suspicion that part of our current political moment is people watching Indiana Jones and like being confused about who the, the bad guys were in those movies. I think you were, I think you were confused. Indiana Jones where he's totally ineffectual in the whole movie and the, uh, the Holy Grail defends itself at the end and <laughs> doesn't, yeah, his, 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 the whole part. point of him doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, that part's true too. It is a very good ride at Disneyland, but that's neither here nor there. Hey, so it's really very early to ask this question, but I'm going to start thinking about it anyway. It feels like the vibe of this offseason is maybe a little different than last year. Part of it is that we are in like the activity phase before all the free agent signings. But I don't know, like this uh, Nathan Evaldi deal is for more and longer than I was expecting anyway. What is it for? Let's see. Jeff Sullivan wrote about it for Fangraphs.com. I think he got four years. Which was the surprising part to me. Four years wow. and sixty-seven point five million dollars. 
There yeah. may be some, you know, there may be some incentives in there and whatnot, but that's the that's the headline. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, okay. look, I think I agree with you that the tone of this offseason seems a little less apprehensive about the failure. <laughs> um and it's good. Like I I was worried last year when things happened that it was just like, oh, is this a sign that things are really changing? Is player development at a point now where everyone is just like, you know what? We're going to make guys who are as good as this middle tier of free agent for like a fraction of the cost. And so let's just do that. Because there are aspects of baseball right now that are changing enough and it's all happening under the surface. And all this stuff is changing in a way that is really going to affect the aesthetic of baseball at the big league level and also like the labor stuff. And some of that has to do with like pitcher usage and all that stuff. And I wondered if that was maybe what was, we saw the start of that on the free agent market last year. Then there was also the chance that it was just a one year sort of thing. And when I was bugging people in baseball about it in the thick of things last year, like even calling agents and being like, do you think now that high school players will almost always sign because they can't realistically expect to go to college, then get drafted and then reach the big leagues quickly enough that by the time they have six years of service, they can sign a lucrative free agent deal. Like it doesn't seem to make sense to be 22 and just enter pro ball. Right. And more or less at the time, people were just like, eh, I think it's kind of just a one year thing. Yeah. And uh, once, once the agents started to say that, I was like, "Eh, okay, I'll kind of chill about last off season. And yeah, it seems like that's the case right now. And ultimately we'll still find out the middle class of free agency will be the telltale sign. Like what happens to Mike Moustakis this off season, you know, yeah. it would kind of be like, he's a great test because he is the control <laughs> yeah. for the whole, the whole experiment really. But yeah, the Eovaldi, a four year deal for a guy with that kind of arm action and that kind of stuff who already has a TJ. Two. Yeah. Is it two? Okay. Yeah. So two. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it'll be interesting. And you know, Craig Kimbrell too. And it sounds like things are, are a little bit better, but I think really the place to watch is like what happens to Nelly Cruz and Moustakis yeah. and LeMahieu and, and Jay Happ and those types of guys, because that's sort of where things are at. As Drew Ball Cabrera is 33, like what happens with that guy? He can still kind of hit and play somewhere in on the infield. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's probably, uh, I'm the one who asked the question, so it's my own fault, but it feels both too early to tell and, I guess in some ways, so I am not happy for them because it sucks when guys get hurt right before they're going to hit free agency. But I think that there was a risk if everyone who was hitting this offseason who we were expecting had stayed healthy and productive, right? So that you actually did have, you know, maybe you had Kershaw test the market because he hadn't been injured and Donaldson didn't get screwed up and Andrew Miller hadn't been hurt the whole, well, not the whole year, but for much of the year. I think that all of those guys probably would have signed pretty rich contracts and we all would have said like, oh, it's fixed. Everything's fine. And that it probably would have obscured some of the signal because we would have been like, well, these guys are making a lot of money. So everybody's going to do fine from now on. And so I'm, I think you're right that like the, the middle class is a much better indicator. And I think it's one that will pay much greater attention to than we might have if all of those sort of marquee free agents had truly hit at the same time. And, you know, had experienced some sort of frenzied right. bidding war. 
And I don't know, now it's much more my problem than it was a month ago. If we have a labor stoppage, I don't know what we'll <laughs> write about. Dang uh, it. No, we'll come up with, we'd come up with some stuff. Labor stoppage is like prime meg time. Yeah, that's the sort of thing where you can, can get uh, real weird. <laughs> start going nuts with all sorts of weirdness and <laughs> definitely have like the uh, the non-baseball player baseball draft Yes. That I kind of kind of would like to do at some point with the staff and just be like, all right, you're not allowed to take a baseball player, feel the baseball team. That's a great idea. Let's Yeah, just all the goofy content, like the stoner Eric content. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, what if we just like wrote about if if uh tie like everyone wore a tie dye uniform <laughs> yeah, what man. it would do to to the batter's ability to pick up spin or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, and just start writing about <laughs> stuff like that. That'll be fine. If you want to write that stuff now, you're welcome to. Carson's gone. He would have approved that stuff too. The floodgates are open. I won't tell Appleman. It's fine. <laughs> this is not a question I prepared you for, but that makes me think. Have uh, Have you watched any of, of our favorite, not currently a baseball player, but football player who will eventually play baseball for the Oakland A's? Playing, have I seen him play baseball or have I seen him play football? Have you watched him play football? Do you no. worry about him? I worry about him. I get very stressed. I understand that he is a tiny-bodied player. Seems very like slight. We're talking about Kyler, Kyler Murray, Murray, as I'm sure everyone knows, but in case they didn't, Kyler yeah. Murray. My sport watching has changed pretty dramatically just since I've gotten this job, but uh, that is another show. And so, like, Kyler, yeah, I haven't watched him play football. I'm sure it's so – like, I've seen the highlights and he – it appears as though he's electric. Like, I don't know yeah. if anybody has done this – has looked like this, like, since Vic. Yeah. He's not better than Vic. No. No. But I don't know. Like, um, who are some other hypermobile quarterbacks that have played the last 15 years since, like – well, I guess, wow, 17 years since Vic was drafted. Oh, God, uh, has it really been that long? Uh-huh. Pat White at West Virginia is the first one that comes to mind. Another two-sport guy uh, who, who played baseball for a while, although Vic was also drafted by the Rockies. I don't know who else is like that triple option quarterback who could really run. I can't recall anybody. Oh, Jake Locker, I suppose. Jake. Another. I'm just thinking of guys who played baseball too. <laughs> can I can I offer a, a quick digression on Jake Locker? I'm going to try to find I'm going to try to find a picture from this. Ceremony. So Jake Locker played, obviously, uh, in addition to, to baseball, played football for the University of Washington. And, you know, he he went on to have an, a thoroughly underwhelming pro career and then uh, walked away from football, I think, at a fairly young, young age for someone who he'd had injuries and whatnot. But, like, he's only 30 years old now. So he could, right. in theory, maybe still be having a productive pro career. And he's from Ferndale, Washington, which is – um you know, it's it's a a city that's kind of way up by the Canadian border, like the county it's in is up by the Canadian border, and it's um, you know, it's like a it's like a smallish rural-ish town. It has like eleven thousand people in it, and Jake Locker came back a year or two ago to be honored by the University of Washington for his like you know contributions to the school and his great pro career and he walks onto the field with his lovely family and he was in like head to toe like hunting camo like he okay. was just 
He just looked like, you know, he had walked into the stadium from his car, having immediately come from the woods outside of Ferndale. And, uh, you know, this was like a celebration. Many people would wear a suit, but not Jake Locker. He was just going to be true to himself uh, and be like the most accomplished person from the city of Ferndale. I think he and his family still live there now. So that's my Jake Locker story. I was like, Jake, you could have put on like a, you don't have to wear a, a tie, but you could put on like a, a sport coat or a suit jacket. <laughs> I'm trying to find pictures of this and it's not, it's not yielding anything on, on the Google, but but I also think that people should just uh, be themselves. They should be true to their own selves. Um, sure. Camo as formal attire has, I think, become pretty common. Has it? Hmm. Ha- has it? Yeah. I think to... in certain parts of, I don't know, like I've been in the middle of Pennsylvania where like. I guess that's true. I just it's... think it's it's a bubble. It's a bubble thing. Yeah. It's got, Ferndale has a similar vibe to some parts of Pennsylvania. You know, it's like a small. It's a small place, and Jake Locker came from there. Locker, Michael Kanan. I remember. I'm looking at the Ferndale Wikipedia page now, and all the notable <laughs> people are there's um there are two people I don't know. One is an astronaut and U.S. Navy captain named Wendy Lawrence, who is probably the the most important of the people I'm about yeah, to name. The most actually accomplished yeah. of any of the folks involved. But then it's like Eagles coach Doug Peterson. Oh yeah, Doug Peterson's from there. I forgot. Dennis Erickson, who was oh wow, why does he have a ASU hat on in his picture? I don't know, but I know he coached at other places. And then Michael Kanan, who I remember trying to this was such a great idea by the Buccaneers. They tried to have Michael Kanan kick and punt, like to save a roster spot, which oh, is like no. a very progressive baseball y type thing to do. Yeah. And I love that. It was he failed miserably. Yeah. But it's a great idea. It's like we can we can roster one more actual athlete if we can have the same guy kick and punt. Like it would seem to me if you were good at both of those things that you'd immediately become like the most sought after kicker in football. Yeah. Why can, aren't there people who are good at both of those things? I don't know. It's a weird – you know what I think it is? <laughs> have you ever seen a picture of like an NFL kicker's legs – one of them ends up being significantly more muscular than the other. Is it possible that they just <laughs> – they become so specialized in their – Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I'm trying to think of other mobile quarterbacks. I mean like Cam Newton. Oh, here, yeah. That's was really a, freakish he was He was mobile in – Timothy Tebow. Timothy Tebow. Just RG, naming all these guys we can remember. Kaepernick. Yeah, RG3. I, I was RG, a big Kaepernick guy when he was at Nevada. RG3 was mobile in, in college. Right. Then I have all like my pet guys. Like this is, if you would like an example of like how my sport viewing amount has declined over the years. Like I used to love watching Omar Jacobs, who was the quarterback at Bowling Green. Oh dear! Like, I used to watch like <laughs> Mac football on Thursday nights religiously and like take notes. That's because Maction is so fun. Love uh, Maction. <laughs> so it's so bad. Uh, but like yeah, like this was like. Who else was I super into at the time? Like, oh, Seneca Wallace at Iowa State. Oh, yes. I am, <laughs> yeah, I like, am I like, familiar. All that stuff. There are guys like this that exist now, but just not within the scope of my casual sports viewership because that doesn't exist. Yeah. You can't just do it casually. It has to be like super intense and I don't have time for the intense stuff anymore. So, no. it, it, so I just reject it entirely. Yeah. Former Seattle Seahawks, Seneca Wallace. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I don't think he's playing f- – He's not playing football anymore. He's 38. Wow, Seneca, look at you. You're much older than I thought you were. Madden 05 backup quarterback, <laughs> Seneca Wallace. Just take Seneca, you know, 
And if your if your starter, who was always Vic, got hurt, yeah, then you had like okay, some a facsimile of Vic as your backup, mm-hmm. and Seneca Wallace in video in video game football. These are the things that I have retained from my youth. I can't remember anything about geography, especially like on Jeopardy, all those Netflix Jeopardies. You get that stuff wrong. Jill and I have been binging. <laughs> I get. I will admit, and this is going to sound make me sound like just the worst West Coast person. I do get some of the states in the middle mixed up on occasion. Probably. Well, they're just squares. I know. So if you're a visual learner, like you're not going to remember. Oh, that's such a generous. That's such a generous explanation for why I routinely forget geography for the country I live in. So we're going to go with that because that's kind. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how much you forget and then how much you forget from college which you spent so much money on you're like wow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean still time very well spent my calculus teacher in college had a stutter oh, and no. so we got through like half of the curriculum uh and yeah i don't remember it's any okay. of that it would be super useful to know that stuff now yeah but nope yeah <laughs> oh no wow a college professor with a stutter it's like a new yorker story what other baseball stuff did i want to ask you about Oh, I remember. I remember now. How do you feel about Ben and the shift, Eric? I think it's, uh, I think it's I, dumb. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, uh, yeah, as far as the shift specifically is concerned, I was at Baseball Info Solutions when the shift became a thing. And it was kind of funny to be there at that time because the batted ball data that BIS was supplying. This was like pre-Statcast, pre-Trackman was everywhere sort of thing. That deal that, hey, this this is Statcast and all of these are going to be in uh, – this is going to be in every stadium in two years. But for now, it's just in a couple and we're just testing it. Like that happened when I was at BIS. And so the shifting started based on the, bat, the ball and play data that Baseball Info Solutions was providing to teams because they had interns sitting there plotting the location of every ball in play. And there was a lot of hand-wringing at the time on the internet about the accuracy of it, but really it was pretty close because like two or three of us would cross-check every ball in play. Jeez. Yeah. We had it down to a science, but uh, at least in a way that was efficient. But uh, so then what started happening was all this batted ball data was to help us measure defensive ability. Uh, in a statistical way, but really, what teams started using for it, using it for was to position their defensive infielders, which in turn cannibalized all of our defensive metrics at BIS. Right. <laughs> and that was like the year when Brett Laurie was like, "Oh God," and he was lapping the field in DRS because the Blue Jays did a weird thing and put him in shallow right field right. from third base instead of having the second baseman out there. And so it like was like breaking the equation every time they put him out there and he like fielded a ball. Yeah, the algorithm would think like, oh, the third baseman fielded a ball in this vector? That's incredible. <laughs> He's like the most amazing. And so our solution at the time was like, just don't count any of these shifts, which is also wrong. Yeah. But yeah, so... Uh, I have a unique relationship with the shift. Also, it disproportionately affects a certain subsection of teams. And at the time, it was all the teams in the AL East because it was like, oh, well, David Ortiz is in the AL East. Right. And all of those types of hitters just were concentrated in a single division and made it look like, oh, the Tampa Bay Rays are the most progressive shifting team in baseball by a huge, huge margin. And it's no, just because they played David the Ortiz. Yankees who had <laughs> yeah. Teixeira 
and the Red Sox who had Ortiz and, yeah. Yeah, and like Jose Bautista was pulling everything too. So as far as like, well, I understand that people are getting frustrated with baseball's aesthetic and that it looks different now than when we were kids and fell in love with baseball or it looks different than when we, for those of us who have been around long enough, uh, when we started making our way analyzing baseball and like started to make a living doing this. No, you just you just have to change, folks. Like you just have to adjust and be accommodating and open minded and try to change. Like you probably apply this thinking to the rest of your life uh, as things grow and change. Like you have to adapt, and yeah, uh, you just have to do that too. Now, everyone, like <laughs> I, if you don't like baseball as much anymore, like I'm really sorry, but it's more likely that that trying to quote unquote fix this will do more harm than good. Yeah. Um, and if you think you have, if you can think of like six things off the top of your head that baseball can do right now to make the game more appealing from like a visual entertainment value sense, then you have more hubris than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and just realize that unintended consequences are a real thing. Yeah. And that moving the pitcher's mound back or lowering it or raising it or whatever will have even like the robot umpire thing. It's a terrible idea. Yeah. People don't. I I mean, that's what I've come back to over and over. I mean, I guess part of it too is like, what, what version of, what version of baseball are you then prioritizing? It's like, yes, you have more balls in play, although it's not so many more balls in play per game that I think people, I think that's part of what happens with these conversations is that there is an overall change that is quite noticeable, but on any given night, the stuff you're going to see is going to look pretty the same. And I think a lot of people would tell you like, okay, so we're, we're going to incentivize more singles hitting. Is that, you know what right. I mean? Cause like, that's what's getting gobbled up by the shift. It's often, you know, it's going to be a single most of that time. Like, yeah. And I guess for a lot of these guys moving your defensive players around is why like as Drew Ball Cabrera still has a job. Right. And why the Cardinals think, yes, sure, Paul DeYoung can play shortstop, Marcus Semyon and Daniel Robertson play shortstop. And so, so from, I understand that. Like, I'd much rather Ray Ordonez at shortstop. Sure. But it's not up to me. And right. this is just bigger than my tastes, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's, if, if only we could in this moment be like, hey, what if we all had different tastes and it was fine? I think it's weird that a league that like could not anticipate that teams would, if given instant replay, would look for outs, you know, in between a guy's foot and the bag. If he comes off the bag for a hot second, feel that they are like sufficiently, they have sufficient foresight to anticipate all of the the consequences of banning the shift and writing, you know, the specificity, but flexibility that's required in writing that rule. Right. I just don't have confidence that that's true, which is, I think, the most compelling there are a lot of arguments against the RoboZone that I find good, but that I think is the one that I find the most compelling. It's like, sure. we couldn't anticipate this out. We couldn't anticipate no, them no looking way. for this out. You're going to tell me you know exactly how this is going to change the the balance between pitchers and hitters if we have a robotic zone? There's no way. Think about every catching prospect or anyone that's on a big league roster that is only there because they can frame. Oh, receive. yeah. They become irrelevant. Anymore. Oh yeah! You just need a someone to stand back there and just get hit by the ball. If they can mash, like that's totally fine. Yeah, 
And so, yeah, I agree with you. I think most of the time that this stuff just takes care of itself over time. Yeah. And that reacting to small periods of time that appear to be very dramatic. Like, remember when Phil Humber threw a perfect game and everyone was like, where's all the offense? Yeah. I mean, in fairness, that was kind of weird. It was weird, but like (laughs) the response to that was, hey, let's quietly change the baseball. Right. And they did a really good job knowing exactly how much effect that would have. Right. Right. See, so like I don't – some of it is just I just don't trust MLB to make proper changes because I don't think I would trust anyone to do it. And some of it is just like, you know, I get that you don't always like the way baseball looks anymore. I totally agree with you. I don't always either. But it's not – your immediate needs and senses are not the absolute center of the universe. And there are plenty of people who didn't like baseball who are now like, wait a second. This guy throws 102. It's amazing. That's incredible. Like he's blowing people away. This guy hits a ball 500 feet and he hits the ball in the air more than 50% of the time. Like, Cool. Yeah. So there will be all sorts of people who are into baseball for whom it is new. Probably more than there will be people who are like, yeah, I don't like when the when the shortstop is heavy. I we used to like to watch, uh, you know, Pee Wee Reese was about 130 pounds, <laughs> soaking wet, and he was incredible. And probably exactly as tall as I am. Yeah. So <laughs> this stuff is just gonna shake out like everything else does, and uh, it's gonna be a confluence of variables that result in a thing. Yep. And um, I don't want to be the godlike figure sliding up and down the impact of those variables. <laughs> so I'll just watch the the kids play and tell you which ones I think are good, and I'm good right there. <laughs> that sounds good. It's a sensitive machine. Baseball reacts probably in, in bigger ways than people often give it credit for or yeah. blame for to small changes. So I think sometimes we got to mm-hmm. slow, slow down. It likes when you notice its new haircut. It does. And who who doesn't like that? It's a nice thing. It's a nice thing to pay attention. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're coming up on an hour. Do you have any Vegas hot takes that you want to share before winter meetings? This will probably not shock anyone who has listened to me in this space, but like I'm not a huge Vegas guy. <laughs> you know, it is America the ride. Uh, yeah. To some extent. And also, like, all you have to do is be like, hey, this casino looks really nice. I wonder how it got that way. Probably from all the money they take from people. Do you want to play games now? Like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that part of it has never appealed to me. I was taught to gamble very young. My grandfather and I played cards, you know, pinochle, rummy, poker, blackjack, all that stuff from, like, I was in elementary school and was pouring his, his beer properly and playing cards. And so, like, I went through a poker phase, too, like, around the same time everybody else did. Yep. And, you know, was into sports enough that I made money doing, placing little bets in high school. You know, like, little, like, if, you know, five bucks here, five bucks there, whatever. And then I got to college, and uh, my freshman year, I was in our dorm area, which had, like, a bunch of, we had, I shared a common room with a bunch of dudes, and then, like, had a studio apartment basically with that you shared with another person we had like bunk beds basically Mm -hmm. and in that common room freshman year i was like hey so uh you know bet on sports yada 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 and would like to maybe run like a sports book or something like that if you guys are into it and the first person that came to my room who was interested in it was like i want to do 500 on this and 500 on that it was like 
whoa. So oh, crap. I was just kind of turned off by that whole, it was just, it was a lot for me and uh, have kind of avoided gambling ever since then. Cause it was like, Oh, this is different to, this is different than what I thought it was. And then there was like a casino put in near my hometown in Pennsylvania, the site that used to be Bethlehem steel, which is what the, which is what the song Allentown is about, but nothing rhymes with Bethlehem. So it's Allentown. Yeah. That's now a casino. Oh, and yeah, nice. like my, my, one of my best friends works there and, um, you know, I've been in there and it's like, it's just not like a great place to hang out. So I will go to Vegas. We will eat well. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of good food in Vegas. Yeah. That's the best part of Vegas. So that's what we'll do. And there's like good people watching too. Yes. I'm very excited for that part. And I don't know what else there, you know, Penn and Teller are not in town. I checked. That would be the one show where I'm like, yeah, I'd go see Penn and Teller. Ironically enough, they're actually at the casino in my hometown. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> They're touring. They're oh, boy. That you'll thing, have, so. You'll have to catch them a different time then. That's fine. It'll happen at some point. All right. Do you have anything you want to plug, Eric? People will find you at Fangraphs, but uh, you yeah. had some lists that Y'all came know out. Me. I'm doing, we're doing the lists. You'll have more lists soon. Just go to Fangraphs.com slash prospects. All the stuff is there. The trade reaction stuff. I think is feeding into there and the prospect list as they go up. I'll finish the Cubs list today. And so that'll be up depending on when you listen to this, either just before or after this thing gets published, I assume. So go check out the Cubs list and find out why I like, I don't, this is a name. I don't know how to pronounce. I think it's Ravage. <laughs> oh no. It's Javier backwards. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. It's like Ramon backwards was no more. Yeah. This is like, Rivage or Ravage or something. I'm going to lean hard into pronouncing it Vag. I'm just really glad <laughs> that, I get corrected. that I'm just happy you're handling that list instead of Kylie. I don't know if he could be bad, trusted bad. with that name. Yeah. I don't, I don't, there's only one Georgia O'Keefe reference in the uh, scouting paragraph for Garcia. So, uh, well, that's a good place to stop it. Uh, don't that's... Google that if you're listening to this at work. <laughs> oh, that is a very good warning. That has been Eric Longenhagen, and I'm Meg Rowley, and this is Fangraphs Audio. Eric, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. I hope we get to do it again, and I won't be blackballed like a communist from the uh, McCarthy-era Hollywood thing. No, it's a new regime. Good. You're very welcome here.